0: Hey there, nature photographers. Welcome to another episode of Capturing Nature, the nature photography podcast that examines the creative, technical, and unpredictable elements of photography in the wild outdoors. Hey, welcome to another episode of Capturing Nature. I'm so excited you can join me. I know it's been a while since the last episode. Unfortunately, I lost my sound engineer. So yours truly is now the writer I am the executive producer, the director, the sound engineer, the creative marketer. I have all the roles now for the podcast. So uh, with everything else I have going on, it's taken me a while to get back to this, but I sure love doing it. I've heard from a lot of you that this has been very beneficial. So I definitely want to get these going again. So today's episode, I've got two really interesting topics that I'm excited to share with you. One of them falls under our category, The Experience, where we talk about blending the technical and creative aspect of nature photography. And in this episode, I'm going to talk to you about 10 myths about nature photography. And these myths are really detrimental oftentimes to people's nature photography. And then we're going to have an episode today under setting yourself up for success, where we talk about the technical side of photography. And in today's theme, it'll be all about mastering your system. So let's go. All right, on today's segment, the experience where we're going to talk about blending the technical and creative aspect of nature photography. I am going to go with over 10 myths about nature photography, and I'm going to talk about their impact and why people believe these. Because in my experience, these myths Hamper your ability to capture great nature images. They sometimes drive your equipment purchases, necessary or unnecessary. And honestly, if you're on social media much, these myths get promulgated throughout a lot of social media channels. In fact, I I never spend any time in camera system specific or nature specific Facebook groups, Instagram. Well, Instagram didn't really have the groups, but in Facebook. I can tell you that the large majority of people giving you feedback are probably not professional photographers. Most of us have been driven away from dealing with the nonsense that occurs on there. So let's jump right into these 10 myths. And hopefully now you'll have some good information on how to break down these myths and not let them affect your nature photography experience, uh, affect your final product or gear purchases. So here we go. The, the, The first myth that gets promulgated is that if you buy better gear, it automatically means you'll make better images. And the reason this is a myth, does great gear help? It certainly does. But you find me a nature photographer who has taken the time to master mediocre gear, and I promise you they will probably be a much better photographer than someone who has the best gear but doesn't take the time to master it. You know, I find way too many nature photographers are always busy worrying about gear. And listen, you're talking to a gear gearhead himself. I love nature photography gear. I use a lot. I test a lot. And for me, that's really important because I want to be able to inform you about the gear I use. However, you can go buy great gear, but if you're not investing the time in learning how to use it correctly, you're simply wasting your money. Uh, you know, I often say a better lens, you know, upgrading your lens quality is way better than necessarily buying the the next camera body that comes out. So great glass beats better camera bodies. But so often, you know, people think it's all about the frames per second or the megapixels, whatever it might be, when in fact, it's really about mastering the technical side of your camera, mastering the creative side of nature photography, at mastering field craft. And by that, I mean, how how good are you at approaching wildlife? How good are you at reading lighting conditions, how they are and how they will be, right? So if you can learn to master all these other elements, your camera gear will matter less and less. Yes, great gear helps you capture great images, okay? But having great gear without any knowledge of how it works, Nah, it doesn't matter. So if you, you can go out and buy the same gear I have, but if you don't learn how to use it, you can stand next to me and you're not going to get the same image. Okay. It just boils down to that. So that's myth. Number one, myth. Number two, a longer lens and high megapixel images will give me better images. You know, it's funny being an OM system pro ambassador, because I'm dealing with a micro four four thirds sensor. Many people assume right off the bat that my images are not going to be the same quality. I promise you, I have mastered my system. I will put my ISO 12,800 images up against the typical Sony sensor shooter any day of the week, and mine will be better because I've mastered my system. I've mastered Fieldcraft, and I'm mastering post-processing. I'm in, I say mastered, but the fact is I'm continually working on mastering them. There, you don't reach an end where you've got it all down. Okay. So I am always working on mastering all of those aspects. So a longer lens, I find people want longer lenses and and high megapixels because they want to shoot a bird a mile and a half away and just crop the crap out of it. So if you're doing that, you're going to degrade your image some regardless of how many megapixels you have. I probably crop less than 3% of my images. I just don't, you know. It's not what I'm after. I work on my field craft. I want to be able to approach wildlife, obviously, safely, ethically, all those kind of things that come into play. But just because you have a longer lens and more megapixels, that does not translate into better images, okay? Many people who don't have the strength go by these big lenses, and it's a good reason for making a shift to system, get, go with lighter gear, And then they read about image stabilization and all these things. They they build up these beliefs in their head that if they just do this, it'll work. And then they wonder why their images aren't turning out. Because just having a long lens and just having high megapixel, if you crop the crap out of all your images, you're degrading them. Okay? If you don't know how to post-process all these kinds of things come into play. So just because you have a longer lens and more megapixels, your images aren't better. I assure you. I've had high, I've had very high ISO images on the cover of a magazine with OM system because I mastered it. I know what to do with it. So let me encourage you. Don't fall into the trap of just having a long lens, more megapixels translates into better images. So let's talk about myth number three. Post-processing isn't that important. Now, what it boils down to on post-processing is this. Either you don't know what's happening to your image and your camera is most likely doing all the post-processing, or you're working on mastering post-processing. And I don't care what post-processing software you use, just work on getting better at it all the time. I mean, the beauty of it is it's, it's digital photography. You can't mess it up. You just hit undo, reset, whatever it might be. But if you don't understand all the settings in your camera and what that may or may not be doing to your image, if you don't understand how a raw file works and how post-processing works on it, you're, you're working uh, with lack of knowledge and knowledge is power, and in this case, the more you understand post-processing, the more it's under your control, the more your images will look like what you want them to communicate, okay? So I know that learning software can be challenging. I, I get that, but it's every bit as important as understanding how our subjects behave as learning how to read light, as mastering the controls of your camera. So So whatever software you're using, commit to, over the next year to learning, more about how that software works. If you like to read, buy a book. If you want to take an online video class, there are, I promise you, regardless of the software you use, there are tons of both free and paid resources out there. Okay? There will be a way for you to have access to making your post-processing better. So just choose now to invest in your your photography. Take the time each day, say, you know what, today I'm gonna spend 30 minutes working on an image or reading about my post-processing software. You don't have to dedicate five hours a day, just a little bit each day. You know, and, and try something different. So what if it doesn't work? You just hit undo, okay? All right, let's jump into myth number four. If it looks good on the back of the camera, it is exposed properly. This is one of the most detrimental myths out there. And and I don't know what it is, but this past couple of weeks, I've had several clients tell me that they've been in workshops where they paid a quote-unquote professional photographer who told them to turn off highlight alerts and or the histogram because it's not important. I'm going to tell you this right now. If you paid a photographer for a workshop and they tell you one of those two pieces of advice you should probably never take another workshop from them again because they have no business calling themselves a professional. Because in digital photography, to properly understand the exposure of your image, you need to know how to read a histogram and highlight alerts. And it's real simple. It's not complicated. It, there, there's a lot to it, but it's not complicated. Maybe it's complex, but complex and complicated are not the same thing. So here's here's what I want to encourage you to do, Okay there's lots of great information out there on histograms, okay? I would like for you to be able to learn how to ex- how to evaluate the exposure of, re- of your image without looking at the image on the back of your camera. Because you don't know what the calibration is on the brightness of your monitor or your viewfinder. You don't you may or may not even be aware that you can adjust the brightness in, on those two features. W- you don't think about the fact that whether you're standing in bright light or dark, the brightness of the image on the back of your viewfinder will be different. You don't. You may not even know that what you're looking at is not your raw file, it's a converted JPEG. You may not understand that the color profile that you're shooting in will impact that histogram, right? So there are so many things that can affect how your histogram looks on the back of the, uh, I'm sorry, how the image looks on the back of your camera or through the viewfinder. So you need to learn how to properly evaluate the exposure of your image. That does not mean that's how your final image is going to look. Many of my images are paler than what I want them to look look at in post-processing. But the key is I'm trying to collect as much data in every pixel as possible. So the higher the light to noise ratio, right, the higher the, the, the signal to noise ratio is, the more information I have in that pixel, the less noisy my image will be, regardless of the ISO I'm shooting at. Okay. And under exposing an image is the worst thing to do in digital, because if you brighten it, you're adding noise. If we pull our exposure down, we're not adding noise. So do not, it would be awesome if you got to where you knew, yeah, expose my image properly just by looking at the histogram or highlight alerts without even seeing the image. You know, if you could turn the image off and just have highlight alerts flashing on the screen and you could remember in your mind, what your image kind of looked like, that's all you would need. So, Myth number four, if it looks good on the back of the camera, it's exposed properly. That is not true, okay? Uh, myth number five, there is a correct histogram. I assure you there is no correct or, quote, correct histogram we're after. There's no, it's not a bell curve. There's no shape we're after. Your histogram is just telling you information. Our goal is to expose to the right, okay? And I'll talk about that in much more depth in another video podcast but exposing to the right is how we capture as much information as possible in every pixel in our image regardless whether we're doing night sky photography wildlife macro flash whatever it might be okay so you don't have to worry about trying to match a perfect shape you want to learn how to read the information or data that a histogram is communicating to you what does that peak represent right? What does the left end mean? What does the right end mean? Uh, you know, what, what, if, what if there's a gap in between different tones of a histogram? What does that mean? So rather than looking for a correct histogram, we're just trying to learn how to read the information that a histogram presents, okay? So so there is, myth, there is no correct histogram. We want it as exposed as far to the right as possible without blowing out the highlights unless the scene or subject demands that we blow out highlights to properly expose that subject. Okay. So myth number six, you always need a great bokeh. You know, I got to tell you, I love a great bokeh on wildlife images. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but you know, I also love environmental shots and I get caught up in photographers. Well, I don't want to use that gear because of the bokeh or whatever. And I'm like, well, bokeh has a lot to do with the distance of the background to your lens. Okay. You can get great bokeh with any system, but people get in their mind sometimes, and frankly, sometimes it becomes boring when that's all you see. I mean, I know some photographers that unless there's great bokeh, they don't have a picture, and it's like, is that all you do? Is that all that's in your? Is that all that's in your repertoire? You never do environmental shots. You never do wide-angle wildlife. You know where you want more of the background focus. So. it's not all you don't always need a great bokeh sometimes a really beautiful environmental shot or some branches lend themselves you know sometimes the tones sometimes I want a little texture in the background just to break it up so if you always have to have a creamy bokeh in the background odds are your images are going to get very predictable okay they're going to be monotonous no matter how pretty the bokeh may be and I like those images but, you know, sometimes there are people who shoot in certain situations that's all they have to do because they're shooting in the same blinds in the same location all the time. Well, i, I got to be honest, that gets kind of boring, even if the image is pretty in and of itself. So don't always be looking for the great bokeh shot. Sometimes be looking for the great environmental shot or how to incorporate other elements that are close, like framing a subject, you know, all kinds of images. It's not just a, a close-up portrait with clean bokeh that we need. I mean, nature's not always clean and doesn't always have a great polka, right? So myth number seven, let's talk about that. If my images aren't sharp, it must be my gear. Wow. I, I, it's utterly mind-boggling how often on Facebook people post an image And they immediately blame their gear. And this is particularly, I see this a lot in beginning nature photographers and quite a few amateurs as well. It's always the gear. Can I tell you 99.99% of the time, it's not the gear, it's the user, okay? And there are many reasons why your image might not be sharp. Most of it, I find, is using too low an ISO and therefore too slow a shutter speed. But it's also overestimating your ability to handhold the current combination of camera and lens. It's not taking into account environmental factors like wind. Are you on a moving boat? You know, if I'm in a panga in the Galapagos and that sucker's rocking up and down, you know, I've got to take into account that much more movement, regardless of the the incredible image stabilization that the OEM system has to offer. Okay? Did you miss focus? Do you understand the difference between missed focus and out of focus or subject movement? There's all different kinds of reasons why an image isn't sharp, and odds are you don't need to make a micro-adjustment to the autofocus on a lens. My God, I don't know how many lenses have owned. It's it's an absurd number. It's an embarrassing number of lenses I own. I've never needed to do an autofocus adjustment. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, I think there's some guys that get obsessed with minutia, and that is minutia. I realize every now and then a lens shows up from a manufacturer with a problem, but that's going to be easily detectable and very easy to fix. But I find that most people don't understand all the various settings on their autofocus. And I'll talk about that in our next segment a little more. They don't realize the implications that certain settings can have and how it can affect autofocus. Right? I mean, so many people are always, well, it's back focusing. Oh, my God. Most time it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with your technique in the field. It has to do with overestimating your ability to handhold. It has to do with your con- insistence on too low an ISO and a shutter speed of one three twentieth when you're trying to photograph a hyperactive bird like a ruby crown kinglet. Okay, so there's so many things that go into an unsharp image. Not knowing how to apply uh, localized versus global sharpening adjustments. You know, shooting at a high ISO, underexposing, and then brightening the image. I mean, it's going to make it look unsharp. And my God, for God's sake, quit relying on Topaz to fix all your crappy images. Work on capturing better images in the field. All right, let's talk about myth number eight. The IS is on my blank gear is so good I can get away with a lot slower shutter speeds. Now, listen, I'm going to be the first to admit to you, I, I have tested my OM system, 150 to 400 millimeter lens, so a 35 millimeter equivalent, that's a 300 to 800, and I can flip a switch, have a 1.25 built-in teleconverter, and get to a thousand millimeters of 5.6. Now, in the Ecuadorian jungle, I've handheld that at one-fourth of a second, and the bird was sat perfectly still, and the image was tack sharp. I mean, tack sharp. Really nice image. So, I know what I can get away with, assuming my subject is being still, there's no wind, you know, the limbs not moving up and down. But I'm not going to shoot a one-fourth of a second very often, right? I just wanted to see what I could do and test it out. I know what I feel comfortable with on my lowest shutter speed, shooting birds or shooting large mammals, right? I know what I can do on that because I've kind of built this internal database of what I can get away with. But I'm 54 years old. I do yoga almost daily. I'm a pretty strong guy by nature. You know, Scotch Irish. We're not. You know, we don't run marathons. We throw telephone poles, right? So I know what I can do. But if you know what, if you're a 78 year old lady and you weigh 120 soaking wet, odds are you're not going to be able to hand hold a 300, 800 the same I can. So we need to understand our abilities and, and and know our strengths. And knowing your weaknesses is even more important. So what is, you know, you're sitting at home one day, take your long lens out, go in the backyard and find out what your lowest limit is that you can handhold at. And don't take the first image. Wait until your arms are a little tired, you know. I just finished up a private photography workshop on the Texas coast doing whooping cranes and shorebirds, you know. And my client, uh, one of my favorite sets of uh, favorite couples, Uh, clients, they travel with me all over the place. And you know what? She's pretty good at hand holding. She's small, she's dainty, but she can hand hold that lens, but she gets tired way before I do. She'll set her lens down and take a break. And so, you know, how is it hand holding that lens for her after five minutes versus me? Okay. It's going to be different. And she does a great job. She gets a lot of great images hand holding that lens. And yeah, the technology certainly helps her, but I promise her, her ability and mine are still different. And her husband's ability is different from hers, right? So, yes, knowing what you can get away with, like with landscape and all that, that's good to know. But, but you don't always have to be pushing those boundaries. All right, let's talk about myth number nine. You should shoot at whatever aperture or f-stop where your lens is sharpest. Well, I shot this lens in its sharpest at f eight. I don't give a shit. I don't care. I do not care that completely ignores the creative aspects of aperture and how that applies to your final image. I don't care where my lens is sharpest. I am going to shoot at the aperture that gives me the creative depth of field that I desire for that lens. I have honestly never thought, well, gosh, I'm at f6.3. I should go to f8. That's where my lens is sharpest. I honestly don't know where it's sharpest because I don't care. Because my images are sharp. I don't care. I don't pixel. Pete, you know, I'm not, I know how to, re- how to post-process that kind of stuff just drives me nuts. So if you're only shooting at one aperture, well, do you understand the concept that if you move closer to your subject, that your depth of field decreases? So if I'm shooting two snow geese from 20 feet, I've worked hard, crawled on my belly to get that close to them. And I would like to have both of their heads in focus. F8 isn't going to be enough. If you don't believe me, go get the PhotoPills app and find out what your depth of field is, say, to 1,000 millimeters when your subject's 20 foot away. You're going to be very surprised. Probably need to do some focus stacking. Okay? So who cares where your image is sharpest? You know what? Leave that crap to the Facebook gurus. You know, the guys are on there, and it's usually young men, age 20 to 40, and they all ragging and bragging them crap about the latest. Well, you can't get that with this. Meanwhile, I go out and do the very things they say they can't. If you want to watch their ridiculous, you know, the, the you can tell because the headlines of their YouTube videos are as absurd as the headlines you'll see on whatever your favorite news program is tonight. That's how you know you probably shouldn't waste your time. Oh my gosh, his OM system is going bankruptcy? There, Blah, 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 blah. The M1X is officially dead. It was a waste. My God, stop giving those people views. Dear Lord. All right, myth number 10. Here we go. Last one abundant light equals good light. That's usually the exact opposite of what is true. Now, if I want to shoot black and white photography in the desert, yeah, abundant light, but I still want a lot of clouds. You know, if I'm I'm going to have much sky. I I, uh, like to talk about the circadian rhythm of natural light. And if you can learn that circadian rhythm, so for example, we start at nighttime and we begin with astronomical twilight. And then we go to nautical twilight. And then we have civil twilight. And then sunrise. And overlapping in there is blue hour, okay? And then we begin golden hour. And and then you have sunset. And a golden hour overlaps sunset. And then when golden hour ends, we begin daylight. And then later in the evening we get back and we start again with golden hour. And then we have sunset. And then golden hour overlaps that a little bit. And then we'll have blue hour. And we'll be in civil twilight. And then we'll have nautical twilight. And then we'll have astronomical twilight, and then we're back to nighttime, right? So understanding what the different colors of that can be, that'll help you a lot in knowing that, you know what, a lot of the best shooting time is, in fact, when we don't have abundant light, okay? So don't confuse abundant light equaling good light. I love, like in the wintertime, doing bird photography. I love overcast days, whether I'm doing bird, mammals. I can shoot much longer. I don't have to worry about harsh light that's going to wash out the scene. So particularly if you're a beginning photographer, don't assume abundant light equals uh, good light. One of my one of the things that just uh, just makes me sick in my stomach, I pick up a client and they get in the car and they go, oh, and it's a cloudless sky and I'm sweating doing any landscape photography. They go, oh, it's a beautiful day. There's not a cloud in the sky. I think, oh, well, now's a good time to teach them about landscape photography and how hard this going to be. Like we're going to want to focus on – for the most part, either close-up landscapes or we're going to do wildlife photography or something else because abundant light does not equal good light. So hopefully those 10 myths about nature photography, you can take that information and hopefully learn a little bit about your your photography. Maybe make a few tweaks to your technique or your approach or your mindset, you know, our actions flow from our beliefs. So start changing those beliefs and working ahead so that you can master your photography. All right. In our next segment in this podcast episode, we're going to be talking about setting yourself up for success. This segment deals with the technical side of photography. And I want to talk to you about mastering your system. You know, a few months back, I started having this idea for a mentorship program and I realized how important this would be. So I've been writing and shooting video and I've got a ton of work left to come up with the OM system mentorship program and calling it master your system, master your photography. And what I've realized is the more we can learn to master four elements of nature photography, that is mastering your system, and I don't care what system it is, OM system, is it Sony, is it Canon, is it Nikon, you know, Leica, Hasselblad, whatever whatever system, Fuji, you know, whatever system you use, I don't care. Well, I do care. I think you should switch over to OM system. However, and you should buy through my website. However, whatever system you use, you need to master the technical side of it okay and then then you're going you need to in the same approach master the creative side of nature photography and that's composition reading light that is understanding what makes for good poses from wildlife how to understanding you know framing and compositional elements and you know learning All the things that make an image appealing, like visual balance. Okay, I talked about that last episode. So there's master your system. Okay, then there's and that's the technical side and and uh, exposure. Mastering exposure belongs there. And then the creative side. And I'd put exposure under the creative side too. There's a technical side of exposure where you're adjusting dials and pressing buttons buttons to change shutter speed, aperture, ISO. Those various elements of of exposure and metering, you know, all those kind of things. But then there's also the creative aspect, you know, what's the appropriate depth of field for this image? Do I want to blur movement or do I want to freeze movement, right? So you've got the creative side of exposure. So there's mastering the system, the technical side, mastering the creative side of nature photography. There's mastering field craft. How do you, how do you approach wildlife, right? Uh, there's a world of difference in photographing black bears, in fact, I'll even say there's a world of difference in photographing black bears in Big Ben and perhaps photographing black bears in Pennsylvania. You know, Mexican black bears here in Big Ben, we've never had an incident. You know, they're, they're, it's it's a different approach because the safety issues are just different, okay? And if you're going to photograph a venomous snake versus photographing a bird, right? Those are That's different field craft. If you're going to photograph certain insects, some are very hyper and almost never sit still. Some will sit there for a very long period, Uh mastering how you approach birds you know if you get on your belly on the beach and crawl you can usually get within feet of certain bird subjects and if you tried to walk or if you're hunched over you're not going to get nearly as close so there's mastering field craft and then finally there's mastering post-processing okay and that involves whatever software you use and I do not care what it is as long as it's one that can handle raw images you know those four elements of mastering your nature photography will go a long ways towards making you a much better nature photographer. So in today's podcast, I want to focus on how to master your system, mastering the technical side. Uh, you know, this mentorship program I've been writing, I sat down and I tried to think about what are all the different elements that flow into your system? Well, you know, you've got your camera controls, and this consists of your various dials, buttons, levers, you know switches, all kinds of things that are located on your actual camera body and the lenses as well. And if you're if you don't remember which you know dial, for example, on the OM system, OM one, the newest camera body that I, I love to use, you know the dials. Okay, so I shoot manual 100 of the time. So my front dial I assign to shutter speed, and the rear dial I assign to aperture. Well, the default is actually the reverse, but For whatever reason, that's not how my my brain thinks. So if I stick with the default, I'm always making the adjustment incorrectly to begin with. Just because in my mind, shutter speed's on the front, aperture's on the back. Okay? And usually probably because I set aperture and I generally leave it for a certain series, right? Because based on whatever depth of field I I want. And I do back button focus. So that way my my back, my thumb can, can stick with focus more than making adjustments. And I tend to adjust shutter speed more than anything. I mean, if the light's remaining constant, ISO stays pretty set. As long as my shutter speed's fast enough for the type of photography I'm doing, that's fine. So I can free up my front finger to make any adjustments and then hop right onto the shutter button to take the picture. Okay? So my mind also works where going to the right makes a shutter speed faster. Going left makes it slower. Well, that's the opposite of how it came. So I went in and programmed my system because I've mastered it. I know how to adjust and customize those controls. Okay. Same thing on my aperture. If I want to open up, I go to the right. If I want to stop down, I go left. So that's just how my mind works. That's And, and you can learn this. If you're always fighting your dials, like every time you go to make an adjustment, you realize, well, wow, that's weird. I'm actually going against the way it's set up every time, then reprogram, then go in and make changes, those customizations and and stop having your tool fight you. Make the tool work according to your mind. So when people say, well, how do you set up? Well, it may or may not matter. You may not think of it the same way I do. I just know that if you're always trying to make an adjustment to shutter speed and you begin by adjusting the dial for aperture, maybe you should swap the two. Okay, so mastering your system involves getting to, to 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 program buttons so they work for you. You know, customizing. You know, like on the OM system, we have up to four custom modes. So because I shoot manual for everything, I just set it manual. I change the settings for wildlife, and I save that to C one. I have landscape on C two, or I might have a special feature for that. I, and I program buttons. I never use an exposure compensation button, so I reprogram those. So in landscape mode, it's turning on live neutral density filter, right? Uh, in other modes, it does different things. So in wildlife mode, it turns on and off subject detection. So I've mastered my controls where I know where I have them all set up so I can utilize it specifically for the genre of photography that I have programmed for that custom mode. Okay, So that's one aspect, mastering your menus. I mean, the OM system menus are very extensive because they do a lot. They have a ton of features. So if, if you're not familiar with the menu and all of a sudden you realize you want to make a change, you may not even know where to go to make the change or why you would go in there to make the change. Some menu items you set once and leave it the rest of the time. But what about the ones where you may want to make adjustments? Do you know, A, where to go to find it? B, how to adjust it? And C, why would you adjust it? That's mastering your system, okay? I am gonna. I would talk about mastering the features of your specific camera brand, okay? Between all the different you know, camera systems out there, they have different functions, different features. So whereas OM System has a lot of computational photography, like high-res shot or live composite, live time, we've got all these different, especially, you know, live neutral density filter. I can't wait to hear from my Canon clients go, oh, I've got live neutral density filter. And I can go, oh, I've had that for four years. Yeah. Congratulations. They finally got there. So for me, I, 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 I'm walking, you you know, mastering the basics of flash photography, Okay. Mastering the various elements on the technical side of your gear. You know, how does your image stabilization work? Okay. What are some of the settings you may or may not want to have turned on? That's the technical side of your system. Mastering how your sensor works on your particular model. Okay. Trying to understand the technical side of it, because the more you understand that, the more you can make it work for you on the creative side. The more you have your camera do, the less you're in control. And so, you know, for me, you know, uh, I want you to master what what icons are visible in the electronic viewfinder and/or the rear screen, the, whether they call it the monitor or the LCD screen. There are some icons that are very important that you know that where they are and what they what they communicate to you. And there are some icons you may not even ne- you may never need to know. And and knowing the difference between the two, because there is, in every camera system, there is a plethora of information available at the glance of an eye. Plus, I find many people don't master the info button or what it might be called on other camera systems, you know, where you press that info button and you can cycle through various views. So, for example, in one view, you maybe will see your life histogram or your life highlights if you're shooting mirrorless. And if you're not shooting mirrorless now, your DSLR equipment's probably not worth much. So you've probably waited a little too long to sell it and make the shift over. So no better time than this holiday season, even though the economy sucks. If you can afford it, you probably should because it's only going to keep going down in value. So, you know, I, I, I really think there are a lot of different elements. And I know that you may not like reading a camera manual. And so that's one of the reasons I came up with this mentorship program is i'm going to have video i'm going to have written instructions you know we'll have live uh, zoom meetings Uh, and again i'm only focused on the om system because that's the system i've mastered i mean i've shot with canon i've shot with sony and uh, ultimately made decisions to go to om system but whatever system you shoot in Learn to master it. Now, I don't know of anybody else offering mentorship programs like what I'm currently developing for any other system. If I did, I'd be happy to share that because I believe it'd be beneficial to you regardless of whatever system you shoot in. But there are a wide variety of videos out there and other other elements that you can learn. I just believe to master some something, it it really helps to have a mentorship type relationship. You know, in a workshop, you can learn some things. And, you know, whether it's a 7- or a 10-day or a 14-day workshop, you can learn some things, there's no doubt, but you're not going to master your system in 7 or 14 days. Because what happens is you get on destination, you get on site, and you learn a few things, but you're so wrapped up in getting great images because you may never be back to that location. And I 100% get that you know, that's the goal in a workshop. So I want to teach you some things, maybe help you get some new techniques, hone your field craft, whatever. At at a minimum, I just want you to get some great images while you're out there. But in a mentorship program, I'm interested in you being able to take much better images, not just on the next seven day trip, but for the rest of your life. And that's going to involve becoming a master. Now, will everybody master things exactly the same? Nope. You're not going to, but that's where your particular strengths, weaknesses, passions, interests come into play. And that's okay. We don't all have to be exactly alike. And I think that for me is part of the beauty of nature photography. You know, my passions lie in macro landscape, night sky, wildlife and birds, high speed flash, high speed insect photography, uh, uh, image. I mean, uh, uh, uh camera trapping. I love that. I don't have time to do everything I like. And I got gear. I just bought a star tracker and then I did star stacking. And then I was like, well, I don't know that I really need the star tracker. Well, maybe I could use it for some deep space stuff. I just don't have enough time. I like doing my podcast. I'm writing this mentorship program. I love to travel. I like to do too much as part of my problem. But what, I, but what I do is I obsess over stuff and I, I obsess over mastering it because I know that the more I take a tool and I make it more just an extension of my hands and my mind, then the more likely I am to capture some particular image. The harder... A challenge is in nature photography, like trying to photograph swifts or swallows or close ducks. You know, I love shooting tight on flying birds, like a thousand millimeters and getting it all in the frame. I love the challenge of sometimes I clip the wings and then looking for that image where I didn't, you know, a lot of people would rather shoot further out and then crop it. That's not what I, I don't enjoy that. I don't like that. I don't need to do that. So I I I would encourage you to do this. And I I realize that for probably 95% of the people out there, you've probably never read your your camera manual. And I I get it. I'm obsessed. In fact, when it comes to mastering your system, oftentimes the most important part of an owner's manual is not where it tells you what the feature does. It's the footnotes and the cautions at the bottom of a feature that it gives you perhaps some of the limitations, right? So I know an OM system, if I want to do a high-res shot, I can't also use live neutral density filter. So even though my camera system has a built-in neutral density filter, I still carry Nisi screw-on filters so that I can use those when I'm using elements that won't allow me to use the built-in one. And I know when those are, right? So if I want to do focus stacking and I need a neutral density filter on there, guess what? I have to screw it on. I can't use the two together. Or I have to know that if I get above a certain ISO that... Pro Capture Mode, which can do up to 120 frames per second, is going to slow down a little bit. Okay, well, I'm probably not shooting at that high an ISO for Pro Capture Mode. Now, I have no hesitation at shooting at 12.8 or 25.6 on ISO, and I now have a video on my YouTube channel called The Nervous Nature Photographer's Guide to High ISO to shooting at high ISO, and I highly recommend you go watch that. That will help you feel much better about shooting at high ISOs. I cover everything from how to capture, how to expose an image at high ISO properly, how to make sure you start with a sharp image, and how to post process that in Lightroom Classic. So I I hope all these tips, you know, I hope it'll encourage you. Now I've been taking a, I'm on a waiting list for my mentorship program. I think I have 11 of 12 spaces verbally committed. I'm not going to invoice until I get more of my videos done, but I see this in my future as something I'm probably going to do a lot more of because I really like taking the time with people to invest to see their photography progress tremendously I I love seeing people learn a little bit and do well in workshops but I love watching them go ah where they where they really master like I take people's cameras and program custom modes for them all the time but the fact is they when I do that they're very grateful and it helps them but the fact is probably 95% of those settings they don't know a why I set them b how they would set them and c if they should change them because some of my preferences may not be your preferences So what I want is I want to take my clients to where they don't need to hand me their camera and program it, even though I enjoy doing that for them. I will enjoy more seeing them go, well, Lee, I don't know why you do that. I like it this way. Awesome. I love the fact that you have a different opinion on that than me. You may be wrong, but no, I'm teasing. But the fact is, is I hope you get there. That to me will tell me that you've truly mastered your system. So, uh, you know, take, take the time, take the energy, You've spent all this money on the gear. you know. Hopefully, you've, you've got good photography gear. You've got good landscape gear. If you like cheap landscape, You know, maybe you've got the right filters from Nisi. And you know if you've got a good tripod, which we've talked about, uh, Nisi has a really nice one called the Really Right Choice tripod, which I was very impressed with. I saw it at Precision Cameras Winter Expo, and I'll talk about some of those more here in a minute. For me, the more you master your system, the more you'll master your nature photography. That's what it boils down to. All right, in my segment, If the Shoe Fits, I wanna share with you a few things I came across at the recent Precision Camera and uh, Video Store, uh, the Austin locations, there's a North and a South. They had their big winter expo and I was invited. I did two presentations. One of them was top 10 ways to make your photography worse. And the other presentation was behind the scenes, the making of a nature photo. And I love teaching a precision, always good crowds, uh, good energy. And they had their big winter expo sales. So all the camera reps were there selling gear and, and Nisi who recently invited me, they saw my work and I got a call and they invited me to become a authorized reseller of Nisi filters. And I love their filters are high quality. They are good glass. I don't have any color tints. I use the enhanced corporal, I'm sorry, the enhanced uh, color polarizer. I use uh, their neutral density filters, I'm going to be using the 100 millimeter system. I have the special adapter for the OM system 7 to 14. Really happy with their products. Well, I, I talked to the, to the rep there, and you know, he showed me this new tripod they had, where they really got rid of a lot of the excess metal in the ball head, and I was really impressed with the sturdiness of it. It was only I think 690, 699, and I mean, it was a it would make a good travel tripod because even though it's bigger, it's light i mean carbon fiber legs I, and i y'all have heard i have a thing for tripods i was very impressed with this tripod they also have this really cool system that's going to be coming out where you can change your lenses and leave your camera attached to your tripod and it's going to reduce weight. You won't need these big L brackets. And, and, uh, I don't even remember what the system was called, but I was so impressed. Lots of new gear out there that I saw that I I really liked. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was just, I was so busy, you know, I was talking with the guys from the Wild and Exposed Photography Podcast and catching up with them and, and building our friendship and talking with Elise Bender, who we recruited a Wild Wildside, doing a lot of great workshops for us, Tamron Ambassador, and and just getting to talk to the folks there at Precision and, and meeting a lot of other nature photographers and teaching. You know, if you've got a local camera store, A, support them, Okay and go to a lot of the classes there a lot of presentations are free it's a great way to learn meet new photographers maybe pick up on a few tips and tricks here and you know as we got the holiday season coming up i'd like to encourage you you know if you're going to buy camera gear try to if you got a photographer that you really respect and you've learned a lot from and they sell gear buy through them you know rather than helping you know amazon be able to buy another yacht or whatever be sure and take time to support the local guy because he's not buying a yacht. You know, he's paying bills. He's taking care of his family. And, you know, a lot of times you're getting the exact same price. I know as a Nisi authorized reseller, I'll be selling Nisi filters through my website. Guess what? Paying the same price through me as you would anywhere else. So why not? I guarantee you that, that you know, you buying three or four filters through me. And if it's not me, hey, Matt Seuss is an OEM system ambassador. He's also an authorized reseller. I don't mind sharing other people because I know that when you buy through us, you're helping photographers who are out there doing videos, they're out there teaching, they're out there offering and and working seven days a week. You know, Amazon, Bezos isn't working seven days a week, right? So so help help support those people that help make a difference in your life. Um and I know this holiday season that would really go a long ways to to helping us out. So, in the if the shoe fits, I want to talk about Nisi filters because you know I've tried a lot of different filters out there, and 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 in the long run, you know you you get to where you like a product, and I like how easy on and off they go. And regardless, whatever screw on filter you use, spend five dollars on a plastic filter wrench. It just slides around it. It makes it much easier getting them on and off. I prefer to have my, my filters screwed on a little too tight versus a little too loose so they don't fall off. So sometimes you need that little filter, and I've got thick fingers, so when they're those narrow filters, it can be really hard to get a good grip on them, particularly depending on certain lenses. Like I know the OM System 40-150 2.8, it has this built-on hood, and that sticks out just a hair, making it a little harder to grasp a filter. I just grabbed this little filter wrench, and you can, you can know it's readily available through most camera stores. And that will help you unscrew filters. You don't want to leave that behind because there's nothing worse than trying to get a filter off and not being able to get a good grip on it. So I'm looking forward to representing them. I had some great conversations. Hopefully I'll be doing some presentations for Nisi down the road. And uh, I love the fact that they're they're constantly looking for new products. Uh, and, and everything I've seen so far, I really like. They have this little Bluetooth remote shutter that you just swap out the cable and it works for any Uh, photography system you know i think for 59 bucks you can get this bluetooth trigger and and we'll work on any camera system so really a lot of good products out there so at this holiday season we've got a lot of great things out there and i'd really encourage you to spend some time ask you know, before you ask a camera shop salesman, you may ask some photographers you've been on workshops with, or you've seen their presentations, you know, because what what you want is a photographer who, who will ask the right questions. And sometimes camera salesmen, you come in with a set mindset and they're going to sell you what you asked for. And you may not realize, uh-oh, I didn't know the right questions to ask. Okay. So hope you've enjoyed uh, that. And I hope it's been helpful. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining me on another episode of Capturing Nature with Lee Hoy. Be sure and hop over to Facebook. like, Give a like to my page, Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours. You can find me on Instagram at Big Ben Birding Photo Tours. Be sure you go to Wildside Nature Tours website. You can find all of my workshops there. Sign up for the newsletter. You'll get great information on all the great destinations we have around the world. And then Precision Camera and Video in Austin, Texas. They have a great newsletter that goes out and you can learn about some of the workshops I do there. You know, I hope that as the holiday season comes, maybe you'll have some beautiful snowfalls. You know, we've got a great eruption of northern birds coming further south. So maybe you'll get to photograph some species you haven't in the past. But you know, as we look ahead to 2023, we're not that far away. I hope everybody has a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I really hope we have a great holiday season. Thanks for joining me. Get out there and just shoot.